Let's go ahead and begin with a word of prayer. Thank you, Lord, for today and your continued uh, faithfulness to us. We thank you for uh, what we've been able to sing about today and the reminder of the sufficiency of your word. We thank you for the sufficiency of Christ. We thank you for even these five solas that we've talked about and how these are each grounded in Scripture and that it helps us to understand um, that you alone deserve glory and honor. I pray that we might praise you today in Christ's name. Amen. While we are here, we have finally made it to the end of the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, We will have, Lord willing, uh, one more sermon after today, uh, and that will be what I traditionally do, and that is an overview sermon of the entire book. And so we have been working our way through 1 Corinthians. Today we will be on the last verses of the book. Uh, And today's passage, like last week's, is really full of a lot of miscellaneous thoughts. And there's so many miscellaneous thoughts that I kind of wrestled a little bit through how I was going to do this because um, we're really going from one topic to the next rather quickly um, through through these last few verses. And so I, I thought, why don't we just um, lay all the points out and in bullet points, and we're just going to rapid-fire succession. We're going to go from one to the next to the next. And so today's message may feel slightly jolting in the sense that, whoa, we're talking about this now, and whoa, we're talking about this now. But that's just kind of the way the text is outlined, and that's kind of what we're just going to do today is just follow that and um, look at from this point to that point to that point to that point to that point and see kind of how Paul concludes uh, his... Uh, uh, book or his letter to the Corinthians. And so um, if you want to write all this down, your pencils need to be uh, flying today, uh, or I can just get this to you afterwards. But I'm going to give to you our, I think this is the longest outline I've ever had in a sermon, 13 points uh, in today's sermon outline. So if you want to think of it as points or or bullet points or whatever, uh, but this is what we're going to do uh, today. I actually, what I did on these points um, I, I didn't, I just kind of have them listed here, um, but uh, I don't know why this is not working, but I'll let you guys go through that. Um, I put uh, a label at the beginning of the point on what it was or its relationship in the text. So the first one is an answer. This is an answer to the Corinthians, and the answer is concerning Apollos. Uh, and then you have some imperatives or commands. So you can kind of see how I, um, how I put these, lay these bullet points out today. So we have the imperative, be watchful. Imperative, stand firm. We have an imperative to act like men. Uh, we have an imperative to be strong. Uh, imperative, do everything in love. Then we have an appeal, uh, submit to faithful servants. And we're back to an imperative again, recognize faithful servants. Then we have a report, greetings from Asia an imperative, greet one another. Then we have a promise, a seal of authenticity, a pronouncement, an appeal for love, and of course the benediction or the closing benediction here. So let's go ahead and read the passage and uh, see, um, see what this says. We're in verse 12 and we'll go through verse 24. 
Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not as his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and labor. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence. For they refreshed my spirit as well as yours, give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings, Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings, greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. May my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. All right. First one is an answer concerning Apollos. They had asked Paul, the Corinthian Christians, had asked Paul about Apollos, and here Paul simply tells them his ministry plans. You may remember that the uh, Corinthians, or many of the Corinthians, had a high regard for Apollos. In fact, this was part of the reason in the beginning that Paul was exhorting them to unity, because he said, uh, some of you say, I'm of Paul, and I'm of Apollos, and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And so he was rebuking them for their disunity. But what we have here is um, him acknowledging that they did appreciate Apollos. And um, he simply urged, Paul says that he urged him to visit the Corinthians. It was not Apollos' will to come at this present time. Uh, He will simply come when he was ready. You see that in verse 12, concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urge him to visit you with the other brothers but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. So some closing remarks here. The next one is the imperative that we're told to be watchful. And we actually have a series of imperatives, uh, all here in verse 14. And this first one is to be watchful. This specific word occurs 22 times in the Greek New Testament, and it simply means to be watchful, to be on the alert, to become fully awake, to watch, or to be vigilant. One might think of this word in military terms, where you are watching the enemy, or where you are on guard. One may think of the opposite of this, where you have people walking down the sidewalk, looking at their phones, and they run into telephone poles, or they fall into... Uh, a pool of water, or they fall down some sort of a thing. You guys have seen those kinds of things before, right? Uh, We are, on the whole, as a society, I would suggest, less watchful today than previous generations, in general, on the whole. Um, We are more passive and more prone to danger in this way. And while Paul, in this present passage, does not tell us, here are the things I want you to be watchful for, we do have a list of things to be watchful for elsewhere in Scripture. And so I'm giving you a list of some of these, and I have a little positive or negative sign in front of each one of these to simply say, watch out for this maybe threat negatively, or watch out positively 
for this particular thing. And so there are more, but we are called in 1 Peter 5 to be watchful against Satan, against his temptations, against his strategies. We are called in Mark 14 to be watchful against temptation in our own hearts, in our own lives, to be aware that we can be tempted and carried away by different things. We are called in Revelation chapter 3 to be watchful against apathy, to have indifferent kind of whatever happens. We are called to be watchful against, in 2 Timothy, false teachers. And then positively, there's a couple here that we have. We are to be watchful in prayer, Mark 14, and we are to be watchful for the Lord's return in Matthew 24. If I could summarize this list as well as other items here, I would summarize them uh, in two categories. I would say that you ought to be watchful of things within and you need to be watchful of things without, meaning that we understand that threats and temptations can come from really two main areas. They can come from inside, internally, from my own depravity, from my own sinfulness, from my own heart. Okay? And we are to be watchful. The second main category is from things that are without. The temptations or the allurements of the world, the temptations and the allurements of Satan, the temptations and allurements of, of culture, and, and the fear of man and not wanting to be caught going upstream in culture, but just going along with where everything else is going. We need to be watchful against those two categories of things. Uh, one pastor I know recently speculated about what it would be like if God and Satan put out political commercials to convince people to join their own sides. And he said in his particular speculation, that the choice would be so obvious because Satan, or because God would offer hope and eternal life, and Satan would offer hopelessness and bondage in Satan's little commercial that he, his promo video or whatever it is. He said, the choice is clear. I would like to respond to that by saying that this is very misleading because Satan does not promote himself by being up front and clear about what his intentions are. Uh, 2 Corinthians 11, 13 through 15 says this, Such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. So you're going to have people, we're talking about being watchful, you're going to have people disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And then he says this, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Now, Satan is not going around, but besides kind of the oddity of having a commercial, okay? Satan, in whatever avenue he is promoting his own values, is not out there promoting his values and being honest about what he's promoting. He is not out there saying, you know, come join me, I'll give you hopelessness. <laughs> he's saying, come join me, I will give you hope and meaning and purpose and value and all of those things that you want. If you just follow me, they'll be yours, that's, that's his promotional material that he puts out there. 
Satan is operating incognito, we might say. Satan's work, if you are not watchful, if you are not vigilant, as this passage tells us to be, Satan's work will sometimes appear to you as if it were God's work. You will think that must be from the Lord. This must be, this makes sense. Otherwise, why be watchful? If it's that easy, if it's so simple to understand the difference. Oh, I'm following Christ, I'm following the world. I, it's because it's misleading that we need to be watchful. You may be fooled into thinking that you are signing up with God's program when, in fact, you are signing up for Satan's program. This is why Christians are constantly exhorted to watchfulness, to discernment, to vigilance, and to being alert. And by the way, this is one of the reasons why there is a certain kind of safety Not an infallible safety, but a certain kind of safety in the local church, okay? Because we ought to lean on one another. Hey, I saw this particular teacher promoting this particular teaching or doctrine. What do you think about this, okay? There's value in collaborating together on those things. One might think of the uh, anglerfish who has, you know that really long filament that comes right out somewhere in this area here uh, called the Elysium, okay? And, you know, they wiggle this little thing to draw the prey, and the prey comes in, and then they, you know, chomp on this, this fish. Or one may think of the alligator snapping turtle. I don't know if you know this, but the alligator snapping turtle, in its mouth, its, its, its tongue has a worm-like appendage attached to the tongue, and it sits there at the bottom of the lake, and it opens its mouth, um, and it moves this little worm-like thing around until a fish comes by, and then it chomps down on this fish. Um, Like the fish who swallows the hook, or the mouse who takes the cheese in the trap, so too are we when we latch on to something appealing but is not of Christ. Okay? There is what the alligator snapping turtle does not say, hey fish, I'm an alligator snapping turtle and I would like to eat you. Would any of you like to come over here? Okay? There's no announcement like that. It's done through deception, which means that watchfulness is required. Vigilance is required. The danger is that we don't know that we are in danger as Christians until the noose tightens around the neck, until it's too late. Consider a few passages, Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 12. For man does not know his time like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Be watchful, be vigilant. Proverbs 22 24 through 25, make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and do what? Entangle yourself in a snare. Proverbs 6, 4 through 5, give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. 
Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Give your eyes no sleep. Don't take a nap. Don't sleep. Don't rest. Of course, we're talking spiritually here. Don't let your guard down, we might say. Don't think, well, it's fine. Be alert. Be vigilant. Be on the watch. In other words, to borrow what this text is saying in front of us, it is be watchful. Paul is, remember, Paul is giving concluding thoughts. He's already given us all this information, and now he's saying, guys, just be watchful. The next imperative is stand firm. Again, you can see that in verse 13, stand firm in the faith. Barnes uh, has a note about this, and he says, be firm in holding and defending the truths of the gospel. Do not yield to any foe, but maintain the truth and adhere to your confidence in God and to the doctrines of the gospel with unwavering constancy. Uh, We might say it this way, have a spine. The idea is that you have your feet planted firmly in the ground and you don't yield on the truth of Scripture. You are anchored here, and no matter what may come, what's popular, what's not popular, what this person says, what that person says, no matter what, you are standing here and you're not moving. Your feet are anchored in one spot. Many people talk a lot saying, that's just not a hill worth dying on. And that's true. There are a lot of hills that are not worth dying on and I'm not going to die on. But that implies the corollary And the corollary is that there are hills worth dying on. And we probably don't talk about that as much as we talk about, oh, don't die on that hill. There are hills, and we talked a little bit about this because of Reformation Sunday. There are hills that some of our Christian forefathers have literally physically died for these particular truths. And this is certainly what we need to uh, emulate as well. We need to have uh, feet planted firmly on ground. Uh, We could talk a lot about what these hills are. Certainly our faith in Christ is is one of those hills. Uh, The truth of the gospel properly defined is another one of those hills. One of the downsides of living in a country uh, in America with weak men and weak women is that we don't have many modern examples of people who actually stand for anything or believe anything. We already know, of course, that politicians can be bought, but it sometimes surprises me how easily the average man on the street can be bought. And we need to be careful to, 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 to discern how easily can we, or can we at all, be bought. We ought to have feet planted that no matter what the cost is, If this happens, I will not move an inch from this spot. If I lose my job, if I lose my reputation, if I lose my house, my whatever it might be, there are certain doctrines that are worth dying for. And so we are called, as verse 13 says, to stand firm in the faith. The next imperative is that we are called to act like Men. There was a um, theologically liberal author 
who uh, a couple of years ago, she passed away. Uh, But back in 2014, she wrote uh, the following on Twitter. She said, The Bible doesn't call us to act like men or act like women. The Bible calls us to imitate Christ. Again, she said, The Bible doesn't call us to act like men or act like women. The Bible calls us to imitate Christ. And one of the very, very first comments in response to this was our present text, where it says, act like men. Some truths in Scripture are attacked more forcefully by our culture than other truths in Scripture. And this is one that is attacked very forcefully. I mean, there's some passages that you get to in Scripture and still probably the average atheist on the street would say, I'm not a Christian, but that's good advice, okay? And then there are other portions of Scripture that our culture really is against, and this is one of them. Act like men. Our culture right now teaches us the opposite of this, I would suggest. Or it at least teaches us to approach this with a sense of neutrality. This is, I think, offensive to modern ears. This is offensive because we are told that men and women are the same and that any differences between us are only inventions of people. They say that the differences between men and women are social constructs. And so what you have here is an imperative that flies in the face of what our culture is saying simply by saying act like men. What does that imply? That men and women act in different ways. That there is a, to, to have this statement at all, to, to have this statement act like men at all, is a statement that something is different between a man and a woman. Okay? And this goes back all the way to Scripture. It goes back actually to creation. Um, but we are told that, uh, that, that men and women are the same. And as usual, the Bible flies in the face of all of the ideological and philosophical sewage that the world throws at us. Men and women are not the same. They are different from one another. Men, of course, cannot become women. Women cannot become men. When the Bible calls us to act like men, there is something going on here that is communicating a divinely created difference. You can't tell someone to act like a man unless there's a difference. Um... And here's the interesting part. I would suggest to us, I know that our culture says this is social convention. I would suggest to us that because of uh, God's common grace and because of natural revelation, I probably don't have to tell you what this means. (laughs) You walk up to anybody on planet Earth, and I would say nine times out of ten, more than nine times out of ten, if you say... Hey, act like a man. They know what you're saying. They know what you're communicating because intuitively, part of God's design in us is that we know that there's something different here versus there. And so we have certainly, not only do we have scripture on our side when it comes to this issue, but we also have uh, just general revelation 
on our side when it comes to this particular issue. The distinguishing characteristics between men and women are so obvious and so plain and so apparent and so recognizable and so familiar to us that no commentary is offered in this passage. Just act like men. Okay, we know what that means. Scripture assumes that first century Christians know what it means to act like a man, and Scripture assumes that 21st century Christians know what it means to act like a man. It assumed that this was sufficient imperative to give to us. And it means, and I will state it just to be obvious here, it simply means to be courageous. That is what this is telling us to do. This Greek word, act like men, shows up one time in our Greek New Testament. Okay, this is the only time, the only occurrence in the Greek New Testament where we have this imperative, act like men, okay? But it does show up several times, I think over 20 times, in the Septuagint, which many of you know that the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and Aramaic, and then that Hebrew, Aramaic, Old Testament was translated into Greek for the Greek speakers of the day, and it was called the Septuagint, okay, or the Septuagint. And in that uh, translation, this word shows up uh, over 20 times, and there it is translated, um, if you look at the English, as courageous or brave. I'm going to give you one of the Septuagint passages where this is used, and that is Joshua 1.9. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous? In the Septuagint, this is the word, act like a man. Uh, In fact, in one of the Septuagint translations, um, it does translate this as be manly or act like a man. Um, And so we're very familiar with Joshua 1.9, but this is the same word in the Greek as in our present passage. Uh, Be strong and manly. Now you would say, but John, how how, how could this word mean be courageous? And how could we know this intuitively? Because not all men are courageous. And I would say, yes, that is why Paul is telling the whole church including the men to act like men, which may even be more embarrassing. (laughs) He's saying, hey, whole church, hey, women, act like men, okay, be courageous. And men, (laughs) act like men. (laughs) Ah, (laughs) okay, (laughs) I better shape up. He's telling the women and the children, and he's telling the men to act like men. To act like a man is to be brave, It is to be courageous. It is to be bold. In other words, don't be a coward. Don't be soft. Don't be effeminate. And today, of course, we might say, man up. Okay? Act like a man. Man up. Be courageous. And actually, if you take this command and take it with the last imperative that we are to stand firm in the faith, then we have something here that we are called to be a man and stand firm. Stand for something. Have guts. Have resolve. Don't allow the culture to blow you around in any direction that it wants to blow you around in. Stand firm on the truth of Scripture alone. Sola Scriptura. 
So men of Crossview Church, women of Crossview Church, children of Crossview Church, act like men. The next imperative is be strong. Again, this I can't help but see so much overlap between these two. Going hand in hand with the command to man up or to be a man is the command to be strong. Spiritual strength, just like physical strength, requires discipline and dedication. It requires exercise. It requires spiritual exercise. It requires scripture reading and prayer and church commitment and fellowship and devotion to one another and participation in the Lord's Supper and self-denial and accountability and exposure to criticism and mortifying my own sin. Be disciplined if you're going to be strong in the Lord. What would your physical body, here's an interesting comparison, what would your physical body look like if you cared for it the same way that you care for your soul? Would it be strong? Would it be malnourished? If you, if you had a meal physically every time you read or meditated on Scripture, if those were linked to one another, how well-nourished would you be physically? If, if your spiritual disciplines translated into your physical disciplines, what shape would you be in physically? Would you be strong or would you be weak? We are called to be strong in the Lord, to be disciplined spiritually. The next imperative is in the next verse, and that is in verse 14. And it says, let all that you, be, let all that you do be done in love. Now remember this, even if we follow through with all of these commands, but have not love, we are nothing. You remember this from 1 Corinthians what? 13. 1 Corinthians 13. Verse 14 tells us, let all that you do be done in love. Love is like the regulating principle of all that you do. You are giving your money sacrificially to the church and to benevolence needs. So what? Are you doing it in love? You are standing up for truth in your job, your place of employment. So what? Are you doing it in love? You are sacrificing your wants and your desires for your spouse. So what? Are you doing it in love? You're being watchful, standing firm, acting like a man. You're, you're being strong. So what? Are you doing it in love? Think of it this way. When you preach the gospel to somebody, the message of the gospel, the glorious truth of the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ died for sinners so that they can be put in a right relationship with God, that good news, the content of that is good. It's like a good meal. It's like a steak, steak and potatoes, okay? 
like red meat, okay? The best thing ever, right? It's... And you take this good news and you deliver it to somebody in a, a, a Happy Meal box, okay, or whatever, okay? You're, you toss it to them and throw it. Yes, you delivered something good, but the manner in which it was packaged and delivered is not very good. And, and that, would, that would be like the relationship between truth and love here in this particular context is that we are called to deliver good content. That is to say, to, to deliver the strong truth of Scripture, to deliver this to people, to minister the gospel to the hearts of men and women, but we're called to do it in love. And so, so I'm going to take a moment here and I'm going to ornate the gospel with my kind speech. I'm going to ornate the gospel with a, a, a loving uh, delivery. I'm going to give this gospel in a way that reflects the love of God at work in my own heart. So, yes, be strong. Yes, act like a man. Yes, stand firm in the faith. But do it all in love, please. Do it all in a way that reflects the love of Christ to me to others. Do everything that you do in love. The next bullet point here is to an appeal to submit to faithful servants. Uh, we can go ahead and read 15 and 16. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the servants of the saints, service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. All he says here is that you are to identify faithful Christian servants and subject yourself to them. And actually, he goes on to say, and also every fellow worker and laborer. There is a mutual submission that goes on within the context of the church. Okay? This does not nullify the other forms of headship and submission that are given to us elsewhere in Scripture. This doesn't say, well, it's just a mixed bag and all of that. Um, we still do have um, divinely ordained institutions, right? What are the divinely ordained institutions? We have the institution of the church, right? We have the institution of the home or the family. We have the institution of government, okay? And so these things, each one has its own submission and headship and all those kinds of things. But here Paul is saying that we are to have mutual submission towards one another. Um, this actually involves a lot of humility, by the way. This, this involves a lot of, okay, I'll set my desires aside and my needs aside because this person needs this particular thing or whatever the case might be in the context. In the context of the church, it's not, you know, I'm going to blow by you and just forget about you kind of a thing. There is a mutual love for one another in the context of the church. The next one goes kind of hand in hand with this. 
in verses 17 through 18, and that is an imperative to recognize faithful servants. And he identifies two of these servants, and he says, give recognition to such people. He acknowledges that he's been refreshed by these servants, and then he says, recognize them. Now, this one's a little tricky for us, right? Recognize such people? What are we supposed to do? We're we supposed to parade all the VIPs of the church in front of everyone and hand out plaques and shower them with gifts and all this kind of stuff. And how, how is all this supposed to work? It's a tricky one for us because recognition can quickly go to our heads and it can quickly be done out of proportion. And we could all probably say an example of something where we've seen in even a church context where recognition has gone quickly to someone's head and quickly out of proportion. All recognition, so what that means is that the, an, the answer to poor, poorly done recognition is not no recognition. It is properly done recognition. So certainly the proportion would be valuable that we are not lifting someone on a pedestal like they are an, a god kind of a thing. But I would also suggest that all recognition ought to be done in this way, with all praise going to God alone. Now, I will say that the depravity of the human heart has even found a way to skirt its way around this, right? Because you've all probably heard someone get recognized or get a compliment, and they do the whole, oh, no, 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 oh, what? Glory to God alone. I mean, not, not me. I, you, you're lathering it up. You know what I'm talking about, right? Okay. All praise goes to God, and it has to be legitimate motivation. Paul does give room here, though, for showing proper recognition done in proportion and done with praise going to God alone, ultimately. Then we come to really the second half of the passage today, which is the closing benediction. And that is given to us in verses 19 through 24. And the first one here is this business about the churches of Asia sending greetings as well as Aquila and Prisca. And so this is the report, greetings from Asia. Asia was a Roman providence in what is today Asia Minor. The churches there send greetings along with Aquila and Prisca. And by the way, just in case anyone is confused here, yes, Prisca is Priscilla. Okay? Paul calls her Prisca, and Luke in Acts calls her Priscilla. Okay? Same woman, just different uh, names in each particular uh, case. Additionally, the church in their house sends greetings along with the brothers. Okay? Then we have an imperative, which is to greet one another. This is an interesting and surprisingly controversial command to greet one another with, of course, the holy kiss. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Um, it goes without saying that the vast majority of churches, the overwhelming majority of churches today, do not see this as requiring or demanding a literal kiss. And I agree. 
And everyone said amen. <laughs> uh, I don't believe that Paul is requiring or giving us a... Uh, actually, let me say it this way. I do believe Paul is giving us a universally binding command. But I don't believe that the exact specificity is universally binding. The universal truth, the universal principle is to greet one another. Okay? And in that particular day and age, the custom in that culture was to do it through a kiss. Okay? Now, there are some places that still do this today. There, there, are, some, there are some churches that still practice this today. Um, there are some cultures that practice it. There are some that practice, of course, the, the kiss on both cheeks, right? Okay. I have uh, relatives in France that do this, and the last time that I saw my cousin from France, um, that was how he greeted me with the you know double cheek or yeah double cheek kiss thing. Okay, right. Um, so there are still cu- cultures where something of a kiss is customary. Um, but I think what Paul is getting at here is that we are to greet one another, and specifically because he says a holy kiss, meaning that it is to be made holy in the sense that it is not to be um, uh, common or um, certainly not to be ungodly. Okay, So in this particular context, the kiss was certainly not to be sexual in nature, um, it was something that was to be made holy for this particular context. Uh, for us, we may uh, take this greeting and apply it in other forms, such as a hug, a handshake, or uh, something else. Okay? In fact, a kiss uh, in our present culture could be off-putting enough to create a problem. Okay? And so I think there's probably an argument to be made that, that, that you ought not do the kiss. Not that it's one option among many, but probably in our present culture, you ought not do this, okay? Nevertheless, we are called to greet one another in, I would suggest, whatever form is uh, available to us in our present culture. We'll hit these last three very quickly. He gives a promise, which is a seal of authenticity. He says that he writes this with his own hand meaning the rest of the letter was dictated. Paul would sit down and say, write this, write this, write this. And finally, he writes this concluding part with his own hand saying, yes, I did write this letter. Uh, It it would happen to be dictated by someone else's hand, but this is my seal of authenticity. Then he gives a pronouncement, which is an appeal for love. He says those who don't love the Lord should be cursed. And then, of course, he calls for Christ to come quickly, Maranatha. And then he gives a closing benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. A tender note of affection as he closes. Okay. So, like I told you, that was probably the most rapid-fire succession from point to point that we've ever had in a message. But we were uh, dealing with this from the perspective of the text, obviously. And so today's passage is really the conclusion to the book of 1 Corinthians as a whole. And thus, in order to understand today's passage, we have to understand the whole book. And so I'm going to give you a couple of points of summary of things that we have seen in 1 Corinthians. This is not the whole thing, but I don't know if uh, you have caught this 
in the last year that we've been going through 1 Corinthians. But the book of 1 Corinthians has covered a wide range and a wide diversity of topics, has it not? I mean, really, it's, this last chapter is almost a microcosm of the whole book because we said that this book was moving from one topic to the next, to the next, to the next very quickly. And so we have seen a number of topics for what life in the church looks like, specifically what we have entitled this whole series as a theology of Christian sanctification. And so here's just a few of them. We've talked about the sustaining grace of God in Christ Jesus, how to deal with divisions in the church, God's destruction of the wisdom of this world, the elevation of the foolishness of preaching, or God's choice of the weak and foolish to shame the strong and the wise, or the fact that Christian work will be tested, or that worldly wisdom is foolishness to God, or that sexually immoral people should be disciplined out of the church, or that one tolerated sin will spread like cancer, or that we are not to take fellow Christians to court, or that unrighteous people will not inherit the kingdom of God, or that husbands and wives must have regular sexual intimacy with one another, or that knowledge without love puffs up, or that we are to surrender our rights for the sake of the gospel, or that we are to discipline ourselves spiritually, or that we are to learn from the examples of the Old Testament, or that we are to do everything for God's glory and flee idolatry, and that a woman must show her submission to her husband, and that division ought not be brought into the Lord's Supper. And I could go on and on and on and on and on and on and on. This book did not say just one thing. This book said a lot of things. And there's a lot of lessons for us to learn as the church or as Christians throughout the book of 1 Corinthians as a whole. In light of all this, we are called to respond in a certain way, and I want to put this application for us up on the screen here, and that is, number one, we are to pursue Christian, <clears throat> Christian sanctification through watchfulness, firm standing, acting like men, and strength. This is one of the big parts of the passage today, is that we are to pursue sanctification in this way. Remember, the book of 1 Corinthians as a whole is about Christian sanctification. And as he concludes this, he's saying, now be watchful, be strong, in all the ways that we saw as we preached earlier. The second application here is that we are to do everything in love. This was a big thing, not only in our present passage, but also in 1 Corinthians 13. In fact, we spent several weeks looking at 1 Corinthians 13 and defining meticulously what it meant to be loving Christians. And we are to remember and recall that all the knowledge in the world means nothing, all the sacrifice in the world means nothing if you are a loveless person. And so you are to be characterized by love. And then finally, recognize that the grace of the Lord must be with you in order to follow through on these commitments. I would be amiss if I did not give you the proper equipment or tools to follow through on these commands. And that is that you are not equipped. You, we should know this from 1 Corinthians because we've seen this over and over again. You are inadequate for the task that you are called to accomplish. You are insufficient. And you need the grace available in Christ alone. Alone. Solus Christus in order to accomplish these things. And so we are called to submit ourselves to Christ. We are called to preach the gospel to others, knowing that he is sufficient for all of our needs, including our Christian sanctification, as we've seen in 1 Corinthians. Thank you, God, for your grace to us and for your love. Thank you for this book. 
I pray that you would work even for years to come. Work in our hearts because of the truths that we have learned in 1 Corinthians. May we submit ourselves to it. May we grow because of it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.